fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die. Men who mean just what they say. The brave men of the Green Beret. Silver wings upon their chests. These are men, America's best. One hundred men we test today, but only three win the Green Beret. Training to live off nature's land. Trained in combat, hand to hand. Men who train and fight in day. Courage takes from the Green Beret. Silver wings upon their chest. These are men, Americans best. One hundred men will test today. But only three win the Green Beret. But silver wing while back at home, a one wife waits. Her green beret has met his fate. He has died for those oppressed, leaving her his last request. Put silver wings on my son's chest. Make him one of America's best. He'll be the one they test one day, and then he'll be a Green Beret. Hello. Seems like the question that is at the center of all political discourse, but that can't really be named. And it's named around, and it's certainly gestured towards, but it's rarely confronted directly, is what do we do about the small whites? And when I say small whites, I mean in the sense of the class formation that emerges in a settler colonial project where you have the big bourgeois, then you have the, uh, to one way or another, uh, prostrated laboring class, and then you got those ones stuck in the middle. And the thing about them is that they are uh, they are constitutionally denied the possibility of solidarity, imagined or real, with anyone outside of their uh, family unit, maybe, or, or clan more broadly, because they are uh, in competition and often employ, they employ... Uh, people below them, and then they're also 
at the whim of an economy that is set by those above them. Uh, and it makes them an incredibly powerful uh, political block when they mobilize. And what they, when they mobilize, what they want is they want to create a world that cannot be. Now, you could argue that that's also what the working class uh, has in its vision for socialism. Uh, but they're two faces, really, of a, um, of a, of a millenary apocalyptic confrontation with capitalism as such. Uh, the, 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 the working class politics, socialism, whatever you want to call it, that emerged in the 19th century and then guttered out in the late 20th, was this uh, class-organized revolt against capitalism with the idea of destroying the current order and then replacing it with a uh, vision of social harmony generated by that which had led would have led to triumph, social solidarity. And it is the continuation and the completion of the Christian millennium. Christ's return as the return to a state of uh, paradise. Now, the, the small bourgeois also has a millenniary horizon, but it is a negative one. Because it denies, fundamentally, the, con the very concept of um, solidarity, its activism must be driving towards a ecstatic annihilation. Uh, yes, there is, of course, there is a, there, all these groups have positive visions. I mean, the Nazis had this idea that they were going to turn, uh, the, the, uh, turn Eastern Europe into uh, a, re <coughs> a technological re-performance uh, of the Teutonic Knights' conquest of the old pagan uh, Baltic and also the American conquest of the Western United States. With these colonists bravely settling this land and then both dominating and uh, fighting with a, a restive native population. But that is just a, uh, it's a chimera for the deeper desire, which is annihilation. Because that thing is not stable. It cannot be stabilized, absent solidarity. And so it cannot really produce a political imagination or politics geared toward conquering the questions of scarcity and technology and human social reproduction that are posed by a crisis capitalism. It is, it is expanding until being stopped. And that stopping is, is the moment that is being sought. Uh, and it is a death in the process of conquest and domination. It is fighting the battle of Armageddon. And that's who is in control of our political system right now. That's why a lot of people love to use the word fascism. I do not, because I really have at this point convinced myself that fascism is only useful to describe small white uh, social crisis in conditions that are unique to interwar Europe. 
we still have this crisis of death drive in the small white population embedded always within capitalism. Only in crisis is it exposed. But this crisis is not the same as the crisis of the 1920s and 30s. It is a crisis among a depoliticized, post-mass politics culture in which spectacle and observation and passivity have replaced uh, uh, political and social participation. And so to use the word fascism is to assume a degree of social febrility and, and potency that doesn't exist. But the, the impulse is there, and the drive to annihilate and to destroy the systems that we have is there too. And it is what the, the liberals and the left and everyone is passively observing and freaking out about. Because they are the only group of people in American politics <coughs> who are able to assert an independent influence on political events. Everyone else is reacting. And the reason they're able to act, the reason that they're able to do things that are just outside of the capacity, not, not, not that they couldn't do them abstractly, but that they are unable to do them because of who they are and, and how the position they are in uh, uh, textures and, and shapes them into being people who just can't do certain things. The reason they can push past lines and break through things is because they have an apocalyptic vision that is, as I said, positive to them. Now, as I'm saying, it's actually death drive. It's actually annihilation. It's, it's actually uh, fighting until dying. It, it's the warrior dream of the, the pagan uh, cultures that provided the real social structure that Christianity and all these other ideas were just merely like placed on top of. You know, you, 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 like meaning is found in, in in the struggle and on the battlefield, and and ecstasy and final communion come in death through death with honor. Uh, but like it has its own positive fantasy because we are allowed any fantasy we want. We can generate and maintain any fantasy we want, and there is a positive apocalyptic face to uh, the small white political project. Uh, you see it when uh, like poorer, uh, more struggling uh, QAnon people talk about, because like, yeah, a lot of the QAnon people love to talk about it as this, uh, as the Q moment, as as the, the final overthrow of, of American democracy, as the cleansing fire of righteousness, but it is also going to bring about the end of uh, the end of sickness because all of the cures that have been hidden from us by our rulers, the end of a debt slavery, a jubilee. Uh, like they talk about it in the classic terms of a socialist uh, millennium. Because not everybody in the small white coalition has the same conditions. And at the edges, there is a positive vision. And so people can vote and push it forward at every level and believe that they are pushing for a, a positive version of an apocalypse, but understanding that they are seeking the end to a system. And that 
they are able to do that unimpeded because no other group of political actors in America has a positive vision of apocalypse. We see an apocalypse coming, but we can only imagine it in a uh, as a process of material cataclysm and and death and decline because that spiritual uh, element of it has been dissipated out of uh, our ability to socially reproduce it. Like you can see it with the debt ceiling, you can see it with so many issues. No matter how radical you are and how radical your anti-capitalism is, if you are someone who like ascribes to the broader concept of leftism in the United States, even if you hate the Democratic Party and you really do hate them and you really do want to see them defeated and you really do think you hate capitalism and the system we have, the, pros the prospect of it actually breaking up, something actually traumatically disruptive occurring, is terrifying, only terrifying. There is no possibility of a light emerging from that struggle. So the, 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 you end up finding yourself rooting for the Democrats to keep a lid on everything. Even if you don't think that the lid is good or that the thing we're keeping going is good, you are still terrified of anything else because you can only imagine it negatively. But the small whites can imagine a cataclysmic rupture positively. And so they can play cards with a full deck and with both hands untied. And that means then that in the stasis that we're in, where, oh, increasingly, there is no place to go with deep political questions and economic questions. Like, look at the debt ceiling thing. At the end, they were unable to really move the ball in any way. They There is no even rhetorical ability to imagine a drastic change to public outlays or any of these big things. Because all of that money is spoken for by different interest groups that have a lock on a seat at the table. And they are, and politics is now divvying up those rents and distributing them into to one group or another. So that is why the politics get increasingly frenetic and this fantasy of just overturning elections and ending democracy as we know it becomes more acute, but only among those people who don't think they would lose from that confrontation. And that is partially due to blind faith and just a fully pro the propagandized beliefs of people who have been pandered to by every major element of culture and politics and economics their entire lives and are now only really freaking out because one part of that, what they see on TV, basically, is no longer uh, reflecting their values because they're old. And they are very pissed about that. And they're going to try to, they would be happy to bring everything down to stop that. They are the only people for whom that can be said. Now, of course, I must stress, what they're willing to do is just vote for increasingly outlandish characters. They're not going to get in the streets or not enough of them to do anything other than be a nuisance. We know that by now. We've seen it. People will come out for what they think are tailgate parties, 
and that's it. And it's and the, and anything that would be more a dramatic a more dramatic conflict with actual state power is something that they are simply not capable of any more than any other element of our depoliticized, desocialized American population can. But they will vote for people who are more and more true believers, who at more and more and more are willing to go farther than people before them and heighten contradictions. And so, like, they, and, and only because they don't have a self-limiter that every other elected official, uh, everybody else who's voting for a politician has. And if there's going to be any more actors to emerge on the scene, it has to be people who have a positive vision of apocalypse, who have an, uh, who can envision a situation when radical change is not simply misery and is not simply pointless carnage, but perhaps constructive and useful trauma that can be built from. Problem is, the 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 the, uh, the scared housebound types who make up the uh, the cultural vanguard of uh, a uh, left-wing response to the current conditions have turned trauma into the worst possible thing to encounter instead of what it is, the actual building blocks of not only civilization, but individual personality and identity. And like, what is a doomer? That's a doomer. Is somebody not who thinks that things are going to get worse? Because if you have eyes in your head, that should be pretty obvious. It's somebody who 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 thinks that that is the only thing that happens. That a general downward trajectory from one or two indices, like demographic changes, are can only be uh, collectively uh, and accumulatively negative. So yeah, if you're if you're if you're accusing everybody of being a doomer, you got to ask yourself, well, what is my horizon? Like, what what do I see as uh, as as a trial that leads to light rather than darkness at the end of a tunnel? Because if you don't have one, I mean that's fine. You know, I, as I said, it's totally understandable to to think that we've extinguished the light, you know, within us and are now just playing out a string. I don't agree with that, but I understand how that conclusion can be drawn. But then you just have to accept that the only actors will be these people. Everything else will be a, a reactive, uh, a frantic reactive uh, response to that, to those actions. And it, a lot of it boils down to the fact that we have never really built in the West where, you know, we have been at the center of the process of 
capital accumulation, primitive accumulation that, that then uh, stands up these uh, class uh, uh, class compositions that are uh, treaty relationships, uh, truces in a class war, uh, and then generate culture based on those relationships. Uh, at that center, everyone but the most exploited and immiserated become, uh, to one degree or another, uh, personally invested in dynamics that are generated by modernity or post-modernity, wherever you find yourself. And so a threat to them appears existential, and faith in a positive apocalypse is hard to sustain. So yeah, I, I would say I, I, I don't predict the future. I don't like doing that. But uh, the future of American politi politics, I think, in the near future is, is going to be everybody, no matter what they think they're doing, no matter what they think their commitments are, reacting to this uh, political project that has at its base the desire to bring everything down. And the question becomes, is the uh, goal to prevent that or is the goal to prepare for an alternate response to that? And those are personal questions, as I have said. All right, let's do some cards. We've got a military asset. The M1A1 Abrams tank. Ugh, this guy sucks. Compared to the M60, get it out of here. This guy is not nearly as elegant and cool. Very, very unattractive, aesthetically unpleasing. It's it's sad that we don't uh, have a more a cooler looking military, considering how much money we we uh, we spend on this shit. M1A1 Abrams tank, powered by a revolutionary gas turbine engine. The M1A the M1A1 is a heavy main battle tank with the speed and agility of a light armor vehicle, with 150. With uh, 1,500 horsepower, the Abrams can traverse flat terrain at 45 miles per hour. Rugged terrain poses no problems for its unique hydropneumatic suspension system. This literally sounds like it's uh, a brochure at a defense expo. Uh, the Abrams was the stalwart of the Operation Desert Storm ground attack. As I've said, the other one's cooler. 
The other main American battle tank is Wake Alarm. Manufacturer, General Dynamics. Speed, 41.5 miles per hour. Max, excuse me, it says here in the copy, 45 miles per hour. That is a discretion. That is a, that's a problem. Uh, range, 269 miles. Armament, one 120-millimeter gun, two 7.62-millimeter machine guns, and one 50-caliber machine gun. Crew of four. All right. We've got military skill, Greenwich Mean Time. This is pretty funny. Come on. Uh, knowing what Greenwich Mean Time is, is, I guess, a skill. I mean, if, if, you, if, you, if you can just look at a clock, I don't really know. Is that a skill, looking at a clock? I got clock watching class. Honestly, they might be teaching people clock watching in the military at this point. Greenwich Mean Time, University Time, or I'm sorry, Universal Time, or Greenwich Mean Time is the time of day at the prime meridian, zero degrees longitude, which runs through Greenwich, England. At 5 p.m., 1,700 hours, London, England time, it is noon, 1,200 hours in Washington, D.C., USA, and Toronto, Canada, and 3 a.m., 0300, the next day in Sydney, Australia. To avoid confusion, universal time is used as a worldwide standard for navigation and scientific purposes. Called Zulu time by the U.S. military. That's cooler. That sounds better than Greenwich Mean Time. This standard allows for the worldwide coordination of missions such as Operation Desert Storm. Of course, I wonder how, uh, in the era of great, you know, the era that we mapped, the, 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 the century that we mapped the globe, they were like, where are we putting this thing? Uh, how about uh, England? How about indeed, sir? We've got radar operators. There's radar operators. We just got the M1 Abrams. It literally just happened. It just happened. Uh... Whether they are flying high above the grounds in a clouds in AWACS surveillance aircraft or were located on the ground at fixed air radar sites, radar, operate, radar operators graphically illustrated their importance on the electronic battlefield during Operation Desert Storm. The men and women of the U.S. Army, Navy, and Air Force who pinpoint the enemy or monitor air traffic on their radar screens prove to be invaluable in modern warfare. I'm sure that's what they tell themselves. What did you do in the war? I was looking at a screen. Cool. Right, obviously, but why is the why is the Greenwich Observatory where they're making time calculations? It's all connected. It's like the eye opened up, Sauron's eye opened up, in like around nineteen eighteen fifty in uh, in London in England. They they've been doing occult rituals for hundreds of years to open Satan's eyeball and anus so that they can peer across the globe and at itself. They created a an emptiness, a hollowness at the center of their social structure and their and their uh, belief that the liberal uh, capitalist ideal, which evacuates from the actual meaningful zone of human action, any sense of uh, uh, commitment, uh, 
responsibility to anyone else, which is God. That is what religion historically is. It is a ritual reinscribement of obligations. And that means things you have to do day to day in your life. And and and, and uh, British political economy of the 19th century, on top of the machine of uh, industrial cap, uh, colonial capitalism, said no. Everywhere that matters, there is no obligation to anyone else. And so they created a emptiness, a vacuum at the center of their world that was eventually filled as all vacuums are because there is spontaneous emergence from nothingness. We know that. That's how we have life on Earth. And the spontaneous thing that emerged at the empty heart of British political economy is the uh, self-aware algorithm of profit as God. Here we go. We've got government. United Nations sanctions. Oh, don't we love the sanctions that the United Nations drop? We love it when the UN throws some sanctions out there. Uh, prior to the Operation Desert Storm, the UN called for sanctions on only two occasions. Embargoes against southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, from 1967 to 1977, and an arms embargo against South Africa in 1977. The sanctions against Iraq were adopted by the Security Council in the form of resolutions. They prevented the transportation of commercial items by means of air, sea, and land to and from Iraq. The purpose of the sanctions was to force Iraq to withdraw from Kuwait. That's nice, because you've got this tradition now. It's like, what? We're, we're uh, doing sanctions to stop apartheid. That's basically the same thing as uh, saving our precious oil reserves in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait. Yeah, the fact that there was like an actual global isolation of first Rhodesia and then South Africa uh, is used a lot as evidence of that, that there really is like global communism, right? That like no matter what we say, uh, the actual goal of communism is this, uh, are being pursued by our largest institutions. But, you know, that's because uh, the reactionary who, who cannot absorb the reality of uh, moving th through space dialectically and, and the, the dialectical nature of uh, unfolding social development uh, sees a twined phenomenon and flattens it into a single aspect. That is Judeo-Bolshevism. -Bolsh it's, it's the fundamental analysis that says both our highest uh, elites and our poorest are in, a collision, are in collusion together to destroy who? Those in the middle. But the reality is, is that capitalism is the creation of a fully totalized system, and that is also the goal of communism. And they and the one emerges out of the other. But uh, only, one of them has departed the world stage. Uh, but 
anything that serves now what is now a uh, liberalizing, globalizing social agenda is identified with this non-existent communism uh, because the particularist small bourgeois resists the globalization of capital, even though that is the uh, drive of capital, which is why another reason that the small whites can actually coherently oppose it and, and seek its destruction because at a fundamental level, even though they were sustained by it and, and generated by it, they uh, are able to operate uh, with a conscious rejection of that relationship because they have access to fixed local capital that allows them to bake their own reality because that's what capital lets you do. Capitalism lets you make your own reality, but only on capitalism's terms. That's not how it is absorbed, it, and that's not as how it is processed by the people living within it. It's, psycholo- it's psychologized and particularized and pathologized, uh, and, and, and a, and a um, kernel and an assumption of autonomy is, per- is uh, preserved, but that is illusory. Guess, yeah, those middle, those middle men are, in the long term, at, on the chopping block block because it's not a straight line but it is a general push pull of humans into two great groups it has not happened and it probably will not happen before the internal contradictions lead to a collapse but it is a drive within it and the small whites are driven by the belief that they or their descendants will end up on the wrong side of that sorting mechanism unless they intervene to break it up. Geography. Jordan. We got Jordan. The old Heshemites. Heshemites. They were the uh, they were the, the, the tribe that the, the British uh, picked up, plucked up to uh, uh, rule the whole place, but the uh, The Sauds kicked their asses out of uh, Saudi Arabia, and then the Brits and Americans had to make another deal with the Saudis. The Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Jordan is geographically between Iraq and Israel, in, in between Iraq and a hard place, am I right? <laughs> in the Six Days War of 1967, Israel captured the West Bank of the Jordan River, sending hundred, large numbers of Palestinians into Jordan. In 1971... King Hussein forced the withdrawal from Jordan of Palestinian Palestine Liberation Organization officials and troops, Black September. I call it that. It's not in the card, but that's what it was called. Uh, since the start of Operation Desert Storm, Jordan has been pushing for a peaceful solution. <laughs> hey, guys, can you chill? Uh, geographic area, 37,297 square miles. Population, 4.1 million. Languages, Arabic and English. Predominant religions, Islam and Christianity. There's some, I guess there's sort of Armenians there or something. Syrians also, Assyrians also. Capital, Amman, government type, constitutional monarchy, head of government, King Hussein I. Yeah. The Sauds came barreling out of the desert with an army of religious fanatics, the Salafists, and just drove the Hashemites uh, uh, almost into the ocean. And then uh, required, and then made uh, the West deal with them. 
And of course, what happens? The the Saudi uh, elite uh, do they dedicate themselves to uh, pursuing the Salafist vision of Islam? No, they pursue them. They they uh, commit themselves to hedonistic luxury because that's what money does. That's what it does. It makes this. It, it lessens the sting of everyday life. That religious visions and a religious conception of of uh, of time and value uh, are meant to allay. And so why do you need it? Of course, eventually that gap between the relatively suffering people at the base who still have religious beliefs and the royal family, which becomes eventually just hollowed out like the elites of any other, any social order are over time by their access to luxury. Uh, they realize, oh shit, uh, we have uh, kind of alienated ourselves here. And the big wake-up call was the seizure of the Grand Mosque in 1979, right uh, around the same time as the fucking uh, Iranian Revolution. And uh, it helped lead uh, to this project of political Islam uh, being exported and turned into a uh, projection of Saudi state power uh, and a way to vent the steam of pissed-off young believers to give them new terrains to fight in. And in this, they were, of course, aided by the United States, uh, whose interests completely coincided on that point because it meant undermining secular, socialist, and nationalist political movements in the rest of uh, the Muslim world. It is true. The French saved the Kaaba. A bunch of, uh, a bunch of French foreign service guys uh, were uh, brought to Mecca. They had to do a quickie conversion to Islam to be let into the city, and then they just sent them into the basement of the Kaaba to just murk all these guys. I think they smuggled in a bunch of wine, too, and got shit-faced afterwards. All right. Um, we've got the F-15 Eagle. Oh, this this was another archetypal fighter. Like Just a, a very sharp... Uh, lines, crisp, aesthetically pleasing, way better than the gross ones we have now. Capable of carrying a variety of air-to-air -air weaponry, the Eagle is an extremely maneuverable tactical fighter designed to gain air superiority in any combat zone. That's right. Think of a combat zone. F-15 uh, Eagle, it will uh, be extremely maneuverable in that situation. It can gain air superiority anywhere. In a vacuum where there's no air, it'll still get superiority. In Operation Desert Storm, it was employed as a fighter cover for bombers and to engage enemy aircraft. It is powered by two turbo turbofan engines with 23,830 pounds of thrust in each. That's a lot of thrust. The first Iraqi air aircraft shot down was hit by a Sparrow missile fired by a US F-15. So there were a few, like, Half-assed dogfights during the Persian Gulf. I think it's one of the last times we had any kind of real air-to-air -air combat in the U.S. military. Manufacturer, McDonnell Douglas Corp. Unless they're doing shit over Ukraine that they're keeping quiet. <laughs> uh, speed, Mach 2.5 max. Range, 2 uh, 2,876 miles. Armament, one 20-millimeter Gatling gun, four Sparrow missiles, or eight AIM T-220As, plus four Sidewinder missiles. Crew, one. The Sidewinder missile was a big deal in the 90s. You don't hear about it so much anymore, but the Sidewinders. And then it was the Tomahawk cruise missile, which you heard a lot about, 
both of which have been largely made obsolete by drones. I think there has I think there was some air combat between US and Russian forces or Syrian forces over Syria. Not sure though. Military asset. The USS Missouri where the end of World War II was officially declared where they signed the surrender documents. Uh designation uh is that a B or an R? That's a B. BB, I gotta get fucking, I gotta get goddamn bifocals, folks. It's over for me. Bye bye. BB 63, USS Missouri. One of four Iowa class ships, which are the second largest battleships ever built, the USS Missouri saw action in World War II. She is famous as the ship on which the Japanese signed their surrender in 1945. The US Missouri's 16 inch guns are the most awesome of her complement. Of weapons and were used against Iraqi military targets in Kuwait during Operation Desert Storm. Home port is Long Beach, California. It is indeed the Appomattox courthouse of boats. Displacement 57,350 tons. Full load. That's a big load. Length 867 feet. Speed 33 knots. Armament 9 16 inch guns, 12 6 inch guns with four phalanx seaweeds, tomahawk, and harpoon missiles. Crew 1,570, 40 Marines. That's right. The last time to date that a naval, uh, naval cannon has been used, you're saying? I would believe that. I like that. 16 the 16 inch guns are the most awesome of her complement. That's good. That's a decent prose. Well done. Intelligence file. Chemical and biological warfare. Oh boy. Put a pin in this one. This one's going to come back to bite us all in the ass pretty hard. Oh boy. Yeah. Chemical and biological weapons are frightening, but overrated threats to military personnel. Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah. I think I read this one before. It's, it's basically poo-pooing the idea that they're a danger, which is very funny that we then went and had to invade Iraq to save us from this bullshit. Because the nuclear case was always thin. It was the... It was the it was, it's based on the, the tubes, which were... That was a lie. The tubes were a lie. And, of course, the uranium was a lie. The only real thing they had was some uh, stuff from the 90s that maybe hadn't been destroyed. And that's the only thing they found, either. Uh, oh, here we go. Geography. The United Kingdom. Hello. Hello. Hail Britannia. With the signing of the Magna Carta in 1215, England paved the way for modern democracies to exist, didn't they? They're in the 19th century. The United Kingdom, as the most powerful kingdom, had so many territories scattered throughout the world that the sun did not set on the British bloody empire, innit? The United Nations has a permanent seat on the UN Security Council and supplied more than 50,000 troops. In, that turned Australian there. 50,000 troops and materiel for Operation Desert Storm. Get them off of the Security Council. What are you doing? Take away their nukes and take them off the Security Council. 
You're a fucking backwater. Get out of here. Good day. Replace them with India. Geographic area, 94,247 square miles. Population, 57 million. Languages, English, Welsh, Gaelic. The Welsh speak Welsh, but does anyone speak, what, Scots Gaelic? I know they don't speak it in Northern Ireland. Predominant religions, out of instead of people who are just doing it to be annoying, which I'm sure there are plenty of, like the fucking French in Quebec. Predominant religions, Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism. Islam's in there now, baby. Get in there. Get in there, Islam. Hinduism, too. Capital, London. Government type, constitutional monarchy. Head of government, Prime Minister Jordan Major. Yeah, like, shouldn't the, shouldn't the Security Council be every country that has nuclear weapons? Doesn't that make more sense? In that case, okay, fine. Keep the England on, but then you bring on Pakistan, India, and North Korea. I guess Israel too then. No shit. But they'd have to admit it though, the motherfucker. Yeah, from what I understand, Gaelic is really only still spoken in like the Dingle Peninsula in southwestern Ireland. Like a, like a, like a village full of guys are still chopping it up in Gaelic. And it's very funny because all the street signs are in both English and, and uh, Gaelic and it's, it's like an official language of EU and they teach it in schools. But it's like once that once that uh, Band-Aid gets ripped off, it, the sticky the sticky falls off. You can't get it back on. Sorry. I know I know you want to reclaim it so that you know you you have some distance from your colonizers, but it's just you guys were too good. You guys took to the English language too well. You guys you got to say that the Irish one forced into speaking English did a really good job. And finally, we were talking about them earlier, but this is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, our partner, our biggest partner in the Middle East, more important, I'd say, than Israel in many ways. But now, very interestingly, starting to break off, starting to recognize that the American project at this point is now at odds with the greater flourishing of world capitalism. Like, and that is honestly something that I find funny about the multipolarity people. Because people, like, they really have this article of faith that multipolarity means that socialism is going to be allowed to like emerge in these countries. But multipolarity is the end drive of capitalism. It does not want, ultimately, to be headquartered in any one nation state. It wants to dissolve all of these things. It can't do it yet, but that's certainly the drive. And the American state project of trying to prevent this from happening, which really was initiated with 9-11. We were kind of floating there after the um, after the end of the Cold War. And then, you know, you had the Clintonian, you know, uh, uh, right to protect global watchman fantasy, but that was just unsustainable. The only thing that is going to prevent the the eventual dethroning of the United States from the as headquarters of global capitalism is uh, a assertion of American military power, not uh, diplomatic power because or economic power, because economic power is going to keep moving away, decentering from the United States, and the war on terror is this last throw of the dice 
similar to what Putin is doing in Ukraine, to secure themselves, secure America's position relative to globalizing capital. And that means that our clients are going to start over time having interests that become into greater and greater conflict with the American America's interests. And that's what's happening with Saudi Arabia. And so now they're starting uh, to smooch the Chinese. So, yeah, multipolarity. The great Satan dethroned. Good in many ways, you know, but not something that's necessarily going to lead to an efflorescence of socialism. The real question is whether the uh, the declining powers that still have the ability to launch a nuke, like Russia and like the United States, are going to be able to uh, be restrained from trying to hold on to their preeminence by any means necessary. And that's the big question. I would like to do Hearts of Iron. Uh, so I'm doing, I'm, I'm currently doing research for a series on the Spanish Civil War that I will do later this year. And it'll be more like an inebriated past than Hell on Earth. It's just going to be me. Chris is still recuperating because he did way more work on Hell on Earth than I did. But it will be scripted uh, and not just off of the dome. Uh, so it would be cool to do when that comes out, uh, heart of iron and try to maybe save the Republic, save the Spanish Republic. But man, I got to say that one was really, they were pretty cooked. <laughs> you want to talk an overdetermined outcome. Very hard to imagine. Uh, other than maybe if a, the world war two had started in Europe earlier, which is, by the end of the war, really was the only hope that the Republic had, and they were kind of banking on it. They, they were sort of hoping that a Europe-wide war would break out, and that would lead the, that would force the democracies to ally with them against the fascist axis. But in reality, they kind of, they were always going to be let out to dry, because uh, it was in the interest of the intervening countries the USSR and Germany to, and Italy to sort of drag it out and not risk a confrontation in Spain. Uh, and the Western democracies were hell bent on just trying to ignore it and, uh, and uh, placate the axis as much as possible uh, to avoid having to ally with the Soviet Union, which they in England specifically really, really did not want to do. It's very funny. Uh, Neoconservatives loved talking about uh, Neville Chamberlain and condemning the appeasement at Munich and the awful uh, cowardliness of the British to fail to stand up to Hitler. But the reason they didn't do that, one of the significant reasons they didn't, is not because they were lily-livered or any of that bullshit. It's because to do so would have necessitated an alliance with the Soviets that they did not want to do. The French right, by the time of the invasion, was saying, better Hitler than Bloom, or better Hitler than Stalin. And that was certainly the, uh, the, the opinion at Whitehall. So 
So, like, what does that tell you, you neoconservatives whose entire politics is wound up in this anti-communism? But they also had certain assumptions that there was a a point at, at which Hitler would take yes for an answer. And he really did break all of the understood rules at that point in a way that they were not, uh, they're not ready for. But before that, he really, before he, Hitler felt ready, he really didn't want to go to war. And he certainly didn't want to go to war over Spain. And so they were happy to just sort of let it play out. And that was going to inevitably lead to the decline of the Republic. So, yeah, I'll see maybe, I don't know. When does Heart of Iron, Heart of Iron start? Because if you're going to beat, uh, if you're going to win the Spanish Civil War as the Republic, what you need to do is act first. You need to act first, which, as I've been saying, is what liberal Democrats can never do in crisis. Liberal Democrats are incapable of acting first. And the working class in Spain was too divided against itself between anarchist and socialist wings to act first. And the anarchists were too allergic to the institutions that could have allowed them to actually plan a action other than provocation. And so everyone was just waiting for someone to do something. And that was always going to be the army. And then that's who it was. You can do what Vicky two confed uh, players do and put all your armies and in armies and industries in Republican Spanish areas. The funny thing is, is that when the rising failed and the, the country was divided into two sections, all of the industry was in the Republican section. The, the nationalists basically got agricultural territory. They got very few of the bigger cities in the country and very little of the, the, to the degree that there was any industrial base in Spain at that point, which was very little, was not there. It didn't matter. Once, once uh, non-intervention, had uh, the fiction of non-intervention had been agreed upon, by the by the ally, by the uh, bourgeois democracies, then it was just going to be a matter of time before before uh, German and Italian aid was going to tip the scales, which it, it did very early. They couldn't have gotten the Army of Africa across the Strait of Gibraltar without the aid of uh, German air, airplanes. But the thing about the anarchists, the old CNTFAI, is that its leaders, such as existed, and its organs of power, were reflecting a simple reality, which is that the, they represented people who did not want to go through the uh, sphincter 
of modernity making. They didn't want to be socialized into uh, a proletarian subjectivity. And they, and because of the relative lack of development in Spain up until that point, there were enough of them who were able to access things like mass media, newspapers, literacy, guns, uh, that they could actually make a stand on those terms and say no, rather than accept modern uh, uh, class subjectivity and then move through it the way that the Marxist-oriented parties of the, in the rest of Europe were able to do. And I think really more than anything, that is the damnation of anarchism, is that it cannot be a political actor. And if you cannot set the term of events, set the context, you maybe can win, but you are most of the time going to lose. But in, in Spain, it could be no, it could have been no other way because how do you convince some fucking Aragonese farm worker, you know, who's, who, who works half, maybe like uh, two times a year and is at the total uh, uh, prostration of some landlord or, or someone who has to move to uh, Catalonia to work in the textile industry and, and it only experiences modernity as this wrenching away and as this uh, immiseration and, and degradation. How do you how do you get them to be like, no, trust me, dude, it gets better? I honestly feel like both the anarchists and the communists got owned in the Spanish Civil War, and it really doesn't make sense for either side to point at it as an example of why they were right about anything. Because yes, obviously the anarchists were unable to defend their own revolution. That's an indictment. But once the communists got what they wanted, which is central authority of the military and uh, a, a, a militarized command and a uh, controlled and uh, uh, domesticated like revolutionary process uh, in the cities, uh, they fucking got their asses kicked. They they tried to they tried to fight like a like a conventional military, and they had a bunch of set piece offensives, all of which went the exact same way. They gained some ground, but they couldn't push any farther because they didn't have enough fucking trucks. And then they would wait around for the counterattack that would inevitably drive them back uh, even further than their original position and destroy a bunch of men and material in the process. I mean, there was no... Uh, there was no winning hand there. Because what you didn't have was what you had in the Soviet Union, which was massive concentrations of workers in a, the, the, the few major uh, urban areas. You had uh, a light level of industrialization that was concentrated largely in Catalonia and the Basque country. All of the most advanced industry was in the north in, in places that were dominated 
politically by Basque nationalism and not by socialism. And of course, she didn't have a Lenin. The closest thing they had was the guy that they tried to call the Spanish Lenin, Largo Caballero, but he proved himself completely incapable of seizing the moment because there was no uh, moment to seize. The, the, the tendrils, like when, when Lenin showed up at the Finland station and reached his hand out to grab at the, uh, the sinews of the Bolshevik party, they extended outward into hugely powerful armed uh, concentrations of soldiers, sailors, and uh, workers in huge industrial uh, factories that abutted uh, teeming uh, working-class neighborhoods. But I do think it's interesting that who... I say the army acted first to bring everything back around to the beginning just as we hit an hour. But it wasn't really the army writ large. It wasn't everybody in the army, obviously. Uh, the, 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 uh, the enlisted men and the conscripts and like legionnaires and stuff, they did mostly what they were told one way or the other, depending, they, they acted depending on where they ended up. Uh, and the top levels that aren't the generals, not that many of them were involved in the planning of the, of the, uh, rising, uh, and, uh, a minority of them, uh, declared for, uh, the nationalists. It was who the middle strata, it was the majors and the colonels and the captains. That's the, that is, in uh, capitalism, in any capitalist structure, that is where uh, agency rests. The ability of the socialists to act first was the result of this unique circumstances of, of Russia in crisis and, and, and specifically of the front collapsing and the, the big cities of Russia being filled with demobilized but still armed former peasant soldiers who could be yoked to a disciplined central party organization. But of course, it was also the uh, the urban middle class that formed the backbone of the republic. Which means that they were the most impotent of every group, held hostage to events, forced to uh, very quickly uh, give over control of the of the war effort and the state increasingly to the communists just because they were organized and knew what the fuck they wanted.
Okay. There we go. Don't fear the Reaper, I guess, is all I can say. Because all our time has come. Bye.